This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 228, brought to you association with SMART and theenlistedboard.com and I'm delighted to be joined today by Alistair Cotton, co-founder at Integrated Finance, to talk about whether we need to rethink compliance. Integrated Finance themselves help fintechs launch and scale using best-in-class providers creating bespoke payment experiences, whatever all that means and no doubt we'll hear later in the show. In terms of rethinking compliance and regulation, I think the thumbnail sketch here is that Fintech didn't really exist very much at all 15 years ago, and regulation of it didn't exist until, I don't know, 10 years ago or five years ago, somewhere in between. And the whole fintech thing has taken off extremely rapidly, and the regulators have been playing catch-up, and more and more regulations have been piled on top of more and more regulations, and both from the regulator side, but also from the fintech side, one has a bit of a feeling that if this was a code base, if this was a bunch of software that you just added more and more modules to in a higgledy-piggledy fashion, by now one would perhaps be thinking about rewriting the code from scratch to make it more robust and re-architected. But that's the high-fluting stuff. At a simpler level, like everything from tax to FS regulation, the non-stop complexification, if that's a word, and if it isn't, I've just created it, never stops increasing as bureaucrats create ever more rules that must be obeyed at all times, which is a pain in the derriere if you're a so-called regulated entity in any sector. So, can technology help Is there something we can do rather than just waiting for the regulator to rewrite all the regulations from scratch, which may take them some time? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on the show. Good morning, Alistair. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. And in terms of something we've never discussed on the podcast before, which is always an interesting challenge after 227 episodes, we were briefly talking about robot vacuum cleaners and uh, we acquired one about 10 days ago and I'm a great fan actually you just sort of set it off and do let it do its thing and then realize that some wires it's got caught up somewhere (laughs) never seems to be amazed at how much sort of dirt and dust it brings up but uh, you said you got one and it sort of died yeah and we're not sure whether it was poorly made or the fact that we used to put our six-month-old son on top of it and let it you know, take him around the room and him have a merry old time being transported by this robot vacuum cleaner. Ah, I haven't read fully the uh, documentation that comes with it, but <laughs> at the top of my head, I, w- I would guess that putting a kid on top of it doesn't entirely help. I mean, I- I'd seen these things and I thought, gimmick, gimmick, gimmick. And then just sort of briefly, for some reason, I don't know why, I happened to come across them again. And the Amazon reviews kind of impressed me insofar as a lot of them said, yeah, basically the first generation was a bit shit. But actually, the second generation, actually, really quite good. And, you know, I think it was about 34 quid or something on Amazon. It was really quite cheap. So it's brilliant, actually. So we quite like us. Was yours a first generation or a second generation? I think it was a first generation. So I agree, probably a bit naffly made. But the, the, the other issue we ran into is uh, having a house full of females with long hair 
turned out to be a bit of a challenge for the vacuum cleaner as, as well on its brushes where you get tangled up every two metres or so picking up all their excess long hair that they shed every two seconds. Yes, yes. Well, I've noticed that in my place and of course I can blame Bridget because uh, these days my sort of hair, <laughs> my hippie hair has uh, given up a long time ago. But absolutely, once the rulers get uh, caught round, so I, like many things in life actually, it's really interesting, like many things in life, whether it's compliance or whether it's buying a bloody robot vacuum cleaner, you can come up with a simple overview, as I kind of waffled about in the intro to this one, but you really sort of have to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in, you know, and it's quite hard because you have to work it out yourself unless you come across the right kind of um, uh, reviews on Amazon or wherever you, you look, that actually there are use cases for <laughs> robot vacuum cleaners, and I would entirely imagine if you had two girlies and, uh, and a, what, a lady in the house, that that would really mean that you're following the robot vacuum and, and every about five milliseconds you have to sort of take their the hairs out and that wouldn't really work. And also if you've got a messy house with kids' toys everywhere and, and all that kind of stuff, that also Absolutely. wouldn't help. But yes, it is interesting. Um, I guess you, the more you zoom into everything, you get into everything is specific rather than general. Endless nuance, I totally agree with that. Endless nuance, right, okay, well, let's move away from robot vacuum cleaners on to perhaps the endless nuance of compliance, but starting at the, the big picture. But before we get into that, maybe Alistair, you'd like to let the listeners know about your career journey. What, what did you do in the first place to get there to here? My background is in a foreign exchange, so helping businesses do their hedging, using all sorts of weird and wonderful kind of pieces of, of, of legal structure to be able to hedge their FX exposure. And I have worked with my co-founder, Daniel, for quite a few years. We were kind of a sales and trading partnership originally, and we got the chance in 2016 to build our own regulated banking as a service provider, which we did for a couple of years. And then we had this amazing idea because trying to build a regulated business was challenging for us that we should uh wouldn't it be great if there was a piece of infrastructure out there that would make our lives way easier to be able to scale this business and it didn't exist so integrated finance is the result of that i see well we'll hear a little bit more about integrated finance later but for the moment would you like to just briefly expand on the one sentence that uh, my in-depth research of reading the front page of your website uh, came out with lots of words you know best-in-class, bespoke, mumble-mumble. Would you like just to go beyond that sort of those few buzzy words to just a, sort of a few sentences on what integrated finance do as an overview? And I'll say we can get into more detail about what you sell to who later. So integrated finance is an infrastructure company, a fintech infrastructure company that allows businesses to build financial products, you know, at scale and rapidly. And the idea, as I mentioned before, came about because we were seeing that the banking stack that was kind of, you know, vertically integrated together, kind of technology unbundling that stack into lots of different providers to do different specific things up and down that stack, including compliance, but mostly product related things. And each provider had their own set of quite bespoke APIs. And the problem that we ran, to, ran into in Settle Go really was trying to recombine all of these providers together turned into a right pain in the bum because it was challenging to make our system work harmoniously with them all in a way that didn't cost, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds in engineering fees. And so Integrated Finance is kind of born to solve that problem. We platform connectivity to lots of providers and allow our customers to kind of access them all in a, in a single API rather than multiple. Oh, I see. Well, that uh, seems uh, very clear and interesting that along the way, you're doing the thing which is generally 
a very good idea, which is to go out there and solve a known problem you've had. Quite. <laughs> in terms of stuff like founder mentoring and all this kind of thing that I do some of, there are all too many people that sort of sit there and think, oh, I've had a good idea, I'll create this, and then I'll get someone to sell it, and then they fail to find somebody to sell it because they haven't gone out there and found that um, people have got a real headache. You know, at best, they can be selling vitamin tablets, which is a really evangelical sell. You know, if I'm selling vitamin tablets, I have to persuade you at great length that take these for a few months and maybe you'll feel slightly better and maybe, you know, maybe you'll get fewer colds slightly. And other indirect things like that, you know, good luck being a salesman or a CMO in a company for, for that kind of thing. I mean, obviously they exist, but by far the easier sell is, oh, you've got a headache, have you? Well, my tablet will take that away in five minutes. Are you interested? I think, I think we touched on nuance earlier, kind of understanding a lot of the nuance within an industry is the way, if that's where the best business ideas are kind of lurking, I would think. If you really go down the rabbit hole uh, and you, you can see that there are lots of people with the same problem, then you're onto something. Yes. Okay. So having talked before about sort of generalizations or low-res JPEGs and how one can infinitely keep zooming in and, and keep zooming in it in. Um, at a high level, I can say, I think robot vacuum cleaners are good. I do, so I had one it break. And then if we didn't go much further than that, I might end up saying, I think they're really good. I think you should get a second gen one without having found out that there are lots of ladies and girls in your house who've got hair all over the place. And therefore, actually, in practice, you're, you're forever getting the roller and, and taking the hairs out, which is a right nuisance. But then we zoom into the case. So let's just go to the super big picture, fag packety, sketchy, low-res JPEG, mixing my metaphors as always, which is that long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, about 15 years ago, there wasn't really such a thing called fintech at all. Uh, and then there was in about 10, 2010, 2012, funding circles and rate centers and all these people took off. And then there wasn't a regulator. It wasn't regulated, which enabled it to grow quite rapidly. And then it was regulated. And then the regulator adds more regulations and more regulations and blah, 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 blah. And they're always catching, playing catch up and, you know, always slamming doors after horses have bolted by definition because they're reacting rather than Proacting, I mean, no regulator 20 years ago said, oh, I've got a crystal ball here. I foresee fintech coming along. Let's put in some coherent uh, regulations. Now we run into the sort of phase, fast forwarding to the nuts course, which is that investment's also drying up as well. So, you know, when money was flooding into the sector, uh, a regulator would say, oh God, here's another million regulations. Go, oh shit, hire a few more people or buy, some, buy me some more reg tech or, or that kind of thing. So anyway, that's a sort of like really crude overview of the whole thing. Would you like to make it a little bit more nuanced? Absolutely. So I think starting with the, the regulation, e-money licenses and payment institution licenses, when they were created, were deliberately designed to make it easier to start a financial product, right? You didn't have to spend millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds trying to get a banking license yourself. It was a stepping stone. And I think if you look at it through that lens, with some of the institutions that have those licenses today in terms of scale, you can say that they've been a huge success in terms of allowing more financial companies to be created and scaled and become more mainstream. Like almost everyone has a Revolut account these days. There's a triumph almost of the system that it was set up, but I'm not sure when they were created, these regulatory licenses, that they, the regulator quite envisaged that one of those firms or two of those firms might have 20 million customers. And you mentioned that Revolut has got 20 million, of which I'm one. Absolutely.
absolutely. Who's the other one then that's got 20 million? Transferwise, I believe, has got, oh, yeah, almost. I thought Transferwise were a bank or maybe a bank in some countries, but I don't follow these details. No, I think they're still EMI. Right. And this is kind of the second point as well, that things, things have got way more global in terms of who you're serving and which businesses you're able to serve on those licenses, right? So I'm not quite sure that the, the, the way that the, regula- the, the regulatory environment was designed necessarily was uh, thinking that you have these institutions after 15 years. So like the scale of them is, is one thing. And it's interesting that there's a, the unbundling that I talked about uh, of, the, of the banking stack as, as kind of given rise to lots of different institutions that are able to be pieced together and enable these big institutions to be, to be kind of sliced and diced together. But, and this is the big but, operating at scale you know, with millions and millions of accounts across multiple jurisdictions is super challenging, both from an operational perspective, making sure that the nuts and bolts are working, but also making sure that you're doing the regulation correctly, right? You've got all of this information required to onboard the customer. You need to make sure that you're doing all the screening so your customers are not paying someone they shouldn't do. And I just think at that sort of scale, the kind of the infrastructure that was required is, is not quite caught up under the baby financial licenses. I think when you scale up to say a bank, all of the kind of the risk and controls are way more explicit for you to process these sorts of transactions. And they're not implicit in the baby licenses. And I don't think they're doing being done particularly well. I see. So last year, I think JDev from Zopa, maybe this year, name was going, was on the show talking about Zopa's almost 20 year arc from literally inventing peer-to-peer to literally not doing it anymore and um, becoming a bank. And I was about to say banking regulation has been around for a long time, but as uh, Paul Tucker pointed out, as recently as the 1970s, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, it may seem a long time to you, the Bank of England wasn't actually responsible for regulating banks, so there wasn't very much regulation at all. And I'm somebody who argues that, at a minimum, uh, it is far from clear that a tonne of regulation in in banks has made much difference. Some tweet I saw the other day said that half the American banks are bust. And in terms of the so-called stress test from the Federal Reserve, I saw earlier this year that the banks were given. None of them had a sustained rise in interest rates. So the whole system is falling down. But we've touched on that in in terms of de-dollarisation, collapse of fiat currencies and all that um, kind of jazz. However, once you convert to a bank, of which Zopa is is a good example, then you are on the same kind of footing, which has at least been developed for, let's just say, 30 years, 25, 30 years, that HSBC does, that Citigroup does, um, and a lot of attention is paid to it, um, even if that's all going to collapse in a, in a heap due to QE, infinite government borrowing, blah, blah, blah. But I take your point that, although perhaps the way you've explained it so far, you, it seems like you might just be talking about two companies, if it's TransferWise and, and Revolut, that have outgrown the EMI licence, that this phenomena arises, uh, regulators put in a, a relatively light touch compared to full-scale banking, because if everyone had to be a full-scale bank on, on day one, which some people have managed, it takes a hell of a long time. I mean, Monzo is a prime example, and Monzo doesn't have a whole suite of products, despite you know, early intentions to do so, because it took so long to actually do the banking thing um, in the proper way. So, yes, is it just a case of these two, or is this just a case study slash for instance, that you're giving about, well, look, here's one area in which the, the regulators are always trying to play 
catch up and never really imagined that it would go this far. And that there are other uh, verticals, shall we say, within stuff that the FCA is regulating in the UK and other regulators uh, elsewhere. I think though I gave the example probably of the largest firms in this kind of sector, I think it's it applies to the to the wider PI and EMI industry. You can see from the letters from the regulator, the dear CEO letters. And just for the benefit of the, the listeners who don't get those, a, a DSO letter is Distinguished Service Order. It's something you used to get in the war, but uh, obviously not the same. Dear CEO, sorry. So the, the first one, which was, I think, uh, in 2018 or 2019, touched on the fact that the FCA thought that the regulated firms were not protecting client money as well as they should be. Very quickly, that meant that they were commingling or potentially the, the firms that they'd looked at were potentially commingling client funds and operational funds and that they needed to do it better. Tap on the wrists, improve yourself, get on with it. The more recent one, which was uh, this year, was about customer duty. And making sure that they are, you know, making sure that the customers that are being served are being treated fairly, are getting a good deal, are being are being served in the in the right way, basically. And I think if you kind of drill down into the reasons why these letters are being kind of written, it's that the FCA sees firms basically within this industry either doing things manually and not very well in the background, or there are, there are firms where they've we've already touched on this, grown so significantly that they're not able to service a million customers or so at the right speed with the right humans to be able to kind of respond to their complaints or, you know, queries and things like that. It's moving from a building problem to a scale service problem. And this is why the the FCA is kind of saying, come on, guys, you need to improve yourself here because the customers really love the service. But when things go wrong... They're not able to necessarily get, you know, their questions answered in time. All the things that go along with trying to serve a, a, a high number of customers are probably things that the, the PIs and the EMIs might struggle with. I see. So going back to this point that fintech was ahead of the regulators in the beginning and the regulators were playing catch up, to a certain extent for what you're saying is that a number of fintechs are now behind the curve, which is being led by the regulator saying, look, you've got to treat clients fairly. I mean, that seems reasonable enough, doesn't it? And they are trying to then play catch up. And going back to this non-refactoring of the code base, the, the amount of regulations, the thickness gets ever thicker and thicker. And whilst, of course, we've had lots of reg techs on the show, I'm sure some are, are very good. It's not entirely clear that one can solve all of these, let's just say, business management challenges just by buying another piece of software or tucking into another API of another guest on the London FinTech podcast to make all your your problems go away. I think that's right. And it's symptomatic of the investment that's come into the industry over the last 10 years as well. The priority is growth from the investors at the moment. And that that's the that's the kind of the forcing hand here. And what we're seeing now is kind of the symptom of that growth at all costs mentality, I would say, because trading off between acquiring a customer or you know a process doing a process well i think vc growth investors will always preference adding another customer or million to the customer book with the view that you know doing it properly in the background is a is a lagging thing it will it will be sorted in the future once we've got the scale yes and that's obviously much more prevalent in tech than in fintech because by and large all fintechs realize that you can't just do an mvp and your, your mvp loses your clients money because that's going to screw your reputation for forevermore. So I think as a whole fintech around the world does put 
a significantly more emphasis on engineering first rather than going out there and growing and fitting it all together. Interesting. So another aspect, I mean, not getting into the whole fiat currency thing, but is that banks, uh, as we record this in May 2023, uh, have been going bust or rather being purchased, whether it's uh, uh, by UBS in Switzerland or JP Morgan in the States. And in 2023, seen the first significant challenges for significant fintechs. I didn't follow the story in detail myself, so I don't quite know what happened. But as I recall, Rails Bank, for example, uh, who've been on the show a couple of times, and Nigel Verdon had challenges raising funds. Obviously, the, the VC climate didn't help, but also these uh, increased compliance ratchet of, of more and more regulations and the tensions of trying to grow rapidly. I've, I've lost track of that particular story, but I think they're sort of trying to be a phoenix from the ashes at this stage, or rather the, the systems kept running, as it were, but the sort of the, the wrapper, the company, uh, and the funding in the company um, had to go through various sort of... Uh, uh, phases. So how does the current difficult climate relate to your hypothesis here? Well, first of all, I think banks kind of running into trouble and the funding environment more broadly are both to do with interest rates rising significantly. I think the the funding environment is kind of, let's say, up the tree slightly. By that, I mean that the public markets for tech companies and, and big fintech companies are semi-closed at the moment, and that is having a waterfall effect down the rounds at different stages. The early, early stage funding environment, I would say, is still pretty active for funds, but kind of A, B, C, D, E rounds are, are challenging to all but the kind of best performing businesses at the moment, which is quite, let's call it probably a, a reversion to the mean, might be one way to describe it. It was probably swung way further than the, the, the mean <laughs> at this point. I'm sure things will come back. But the interesting thing is, I think the focus, at least in fintech, is very much one, kind of focusing on building kind of really, really high quality customer experiences, i.e. how the customer interacts with you as the focus. That's what's going to differentiate you as a, as a, as a player going forward. And secondly, we've kind of touched on this, that the, 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 the ratchet for, from a compliance perspective to actually launch your business is going up and up and up. And if you think money is finite in all of these funding rounds, you have to use you, you have to spend that money in the right way, basically. And that is usually super slick UI and making sure that you are compliant with the regulations and not spending all your money building something end to end. You've got to be tactical about where you spend your money, I would say. Yes, yes, I can see that. So moving on to the sort of the reg tech dimension of it. And again, it's a bit like robot vacuum cleaners. There is no right answer to robot vacuum cleaners per se, there is the context in which they may be useful or they may not. And so the super low res generalization, one caricatured extreme, and there are people I come across who say this, is that reg tech and technology will solve all your compliance problems and solve all these regulations. The computer's so clever, it'll do all that. Yeah, right, okay. And the other extreme, you've got people like me uh, who observe that whatever it is, 20% of Citigroup in London are fill it, either filling in forms for the regulator, quotes unquotes, or playing with computers that are filling in forms for the regulator. So there is a huge organisational burden, even if you've got the budget of a Citigroup uh, and could buy every piece of reg tech going. And then as anybody who's got any experience of computers and their programmers will know, buying thousands of different computer programs in itself creates its own uh, challenge. So 
as I say, there is no right answer to and I, on my caricatured spectrum there. But in terms of your experience, both directly but also with integrated finance, what's your feeling about where the balance is lying along that spectrum in terms of is RegTech, as it were, helping to to slow the tide coming in, the, the rising tide of re regulation? Is it just simply slowing it? Is it, is it stopping it? Is it actually, you know, in a, in a Dutch sense, being a dam that keeps the sort of sea at bay? I think, so first of all, it's definitely, RegTech reg is, a, is a huge positive, right? So building this technology is certainly making it much, much easier for businesses of all size to do compliance in a more automated manner. I think, I think that's a huge positive. As you rightly say, there's kind of two things pushing back on that. One is the scale thing that we already talked about, which is it, it's kind of a different beast doing uh, regulation at high, high scale, right? It's really challenging. And the second thing is, and, we, and maybe we, we haven't touched on this yet, but we basically invented a new form of money in the last 10 years, i.e. crypto. And that is pushing back hard against the traditional reg tech firms where you know it's based on fiat rails most of the time that's a challenge for regulation uh, and technology firms to deal with right that's that's making it more complicated not less complicated um, to do this well i think there's lots more to do we're at the start of this journey and i think the way that that you kind of go about this is by much higher levels of collaboration and that might be explicit i.e consolidation of the industry where you, you start to merge all of these firms together with all their different data sets and you can start to get access to a much wider range of kind of data to be able to base decisions on or you know the second thing and apple is the most interesting use case here is that the firms using the reg tech uh, technology are able to combine it with their own proprietary information that they know about the customer to get a more accurate picture about what people are doing with their money okay so trying to pull it all this together because there's a lot of moving parts in this. I mean, from the regulator's perspective, and I'm not an expert on that, but I would have thought that maybe if I was a regulator, I might think, blimey, these EMIs we did where we thought people have half a dozen customers or, you know, a couple of thousand, people are always tearing the arse out of those and they weren't designed for 20 million customers. Um, I'd have thought the sort of simplest thing to do would be to, with hindsight or somehow going forward, say, well, actually, look, an, an EMI licence only works up to 100 million bucks per day, per month, per year, per whatever, or to a million clients, and then you really need to transition to the, you know, uh, th this other thing, like there's a bronze, silver, gold, whereas what's happened is that the bronze certificate, as it were, has let people go to a massive scale. You know, if the likes of a Revolut fell over, it wouldn't be systemically important because they're not creating money out of thin air, unlike banks. Um, but however, it would inconvenience quite a lot of people, like roughly 20 million because uh, although the money is somewhere with Barclays, if all their computers fell over, or, or, tra or transfer wises, or whatever they're called, that would be quite tricky. So from the regulator's side, maybe you give me your thoughts about what, what you would do if you would suddenly tomorrow became responsible from their side, and why we haven't had the simple solution that, oh yes, these EMIs, they're only good up to X, but not uh, 100X. And then from the fintech's perspective, again, you're living in this world, what your best advice is to founders or management teams of fintechs that are listening to the show today and who have been nodding their head and going, yeah, I think he's basically, you know, on point here. And I think, you know, we've got a number of headaches around this and uh, we're anxiously waiting for what his clever clog solution is to all this 
unless maybe it's integrated finance, which will take us to the dessert course. But anyway, start with the, start with the, start with the regulation side, and then start with the sort of fintech management team. I think from a regulator side, the way that they need to approach this is by trying to encourage standardisation. And by standardisation, I really mean kind of a, a, a kind of a shared way of communicating, so that both the regulator and the firms coming under the regulatory environment are able to much more easily share information about bad actors that they see across all of these firms. It's just too hard to do that at the moment. And that is, it's leaky. You know, a bad actor might go to one firm, get shut down, go to another firm. And there's, you know, it's very challenging. It should be easy to be able to block someone joining your your startup if they've been deboarded by another one for these various reasons, right? That needs to be solved. And I think that would go a huge way to, to, to kind of helping basically bad actors targeting this sector quite extensively. I think, uh, again, I'm going to bang on about standardization, really, but this is a, it's both a kind of a technological standardization and a sharing of information standardization, but it's also moving towards a standard way for all of the different amazing firms to be able to kind of be plugged together and not you know put that burden on each of individual individual firms to build these things bespoke to themselves a platform that helps them do that is the way to go so that they can one not have to dedicate 75 percent of their resources to stuff that they is not going to differentiate them for their customers but really make sure that they are serving their customers well uh, and doing the basics right in the background I think the fintechs, I think the first the first thing to say is that uh, although nominally financial services is the name of the game, it's a compliance game that we're in. It's become that, yes. It's the compliance game. It wasn't like that 500 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And if you accept that from day one, then I think the way that you go about kind of creating your business is, uh, is going to put you on a good footing. I think if you take it seriously and you invest in it over time, then everything will, will work out well for you. And I think the second point is there are so many good pieces of software out there. Don't try and build everything yourself. Select the things that work best for you and focus on what you're good at. There's an increasing number of uh, people. I think fin- fintechs 15 years ago were built by finance people. Now they're being built by people who understand the customers they're serving, not necessarily finance people. And so it's accepting that you don't know everything, knowing that there's lots of things out there that can help you and making sure that you do good vendor selection and harness everything they've got to give you. Yes, I mean, I'm thinking as often doing these conversations of Ian McGilchrist, who wrote The Master of His Emissary, the, the different modes of the, the right brain and the left brain, the left brain being the, 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 the part that's almost convinced the, the map is the territory and the right brain that knows that, well, we're never going to know everything about the territory. We don't even know very much anyway in the first, the, the first place. And um, I heard him talking about his new book, a mere 1,500 pages long, much more philosophical. He said that one of the problems of the whole... Ah, bureaucratic mindset, regulations, laws, taxes, you name it, is that um, invariably these processes involve a linear assumption. (laughs) Ah, we want to go from A to C and therefore we go via B. But actually, he said, you know, human beings and society have got so many non-linear feedback loops that inevitably what happens is that uh, you get the opposite uh, of the policy desired. And I happen to notice something today about Peter Hitchens' book on the abolition of grammar schools and uh, one of the points he was making that nominally, and I remember this in the 1970s, uh, nominally this policy was to 
level up education. <laughs> Whereas actually, all the evidence shows it's been leveling it down. So in, in, in the world of the human realm, one can set out with a simple way of achieving an objective, but actually end up with the opposite of that objective. And when it comes to finance, and I'm also thinking here of the 2008, after 2008 there was a banking commission in the UK, and uh, they basically said narrow banking, which I think is the right answer, which is, look, basically, let's undo Big Bang, which was a mistake, I have no doubt of that, uh, and go back to a world of, let's say, just in simple terms, building societies. So you've got a building society, and all it does is mortgages and, and, and car loans or something like that. Maybe they just do houses, I don't know. Rather than you've got these vast conglomerates doing a zillion things, and then going back to the linear process, which the poor regulator, to be fair to the regulator for a change, the poor regulator has to do, which is manage some infinite complexity, which even the management can't get a grip of because it's too big to understand, it's too complex and all these things, and now they're saying, you know, too big to go bust, and so we've got to, you know, bail out Credit Suisse and SVB and all these other sort of, you know, the mega banks around the world. And hearing you talk about fintech and the, the, the challenges of regulation for regulators around the world, I can only think of coming back to the thing that the, the thing that has fundamentally gone wrong, touching on what we said earlier, is the F in financial services. And it went wrong in 1971, and listeners will have heard these episodes, when Nixon quotes temporarily, unquote, suspending the gold standard. And when money was simply precious metals, this massive complexity, all these crazy derivatives and all this kind of stuff didn't exist. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is, is literally the limits of even if infinitely wise, infinitely benign regulators with, with no sort of skin in the game, as it were, in terms of, oh, we've got a bigger budget this year, uh, another human dynamics like that. There really is a limit to how you can, well you can regulate, even if there's one regulator around the world, even if they didn't have to all to match up, say, let's say Credit Suisse, you know? I would hate to have been even the global you know, fascist dictator regulator of all banks in the world and try to ensure that Credit Suisse doesn't fuck up. Because you can't do that. They can't do it inside, you know, and having been inside a bank uh, of a smaller scale. So, yes, yeah, so I think there were some sort of philosophical limits we're running into. But in the meantime, I, I entirely buy what you say as a sort of the, the practicality of it. And we shall all have to see uh, how things work out going forward. OK, so, look, it's been an interesting conversation about a whole range of topics here, which... I think don't have a simple answer, depending on what scale you're coming in, whether it's 30,000 feet, 3,000 feet or 300 feet. But before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners for the podcast, Smartest Transforming Pensions and Retirement Worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the, in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. They're listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Alistair, you've been very kind at sharing kind of an insider's view of all this as it sort of develops around your ears and as you develop your company at the same time. Touched on very briefly integrated finance beforehand. Um, maybe just in terms of commercial shout out, several thousand people will be listening. You could kindly let them know what precisely you sell to who so that the listeners out there who should be checking you out immediately on Google can um, Google you. Uh, and then secondly, what you need to make integrated finance be even bigger and better than it is today. Thanks, Mike. So integrated finance, uh, the platform is sold to businesses that want to build fintechs that could be explicit, i.e. they are a financial services company, you know, serving their customers, or they could be a brand that want to add financial services into their product offering. We 
provide the infrastructure to enable them to bring their products to life without having to do it all in-house. Currently, Integrated Finance um, operates in the UK and Europe, and we're always on the lookout for partner banks across the continent. I think we're also always very happy to speak to engineers from that are they're used to build building integrations to banks. That's probably our key kind of juice. Uh, and so, anyone with that skill set, you know, we would love to speak to them. Excellent. Well, it's been a very interesting topic. Um, topics do vary. I should categorise them sometimes if I can. Uh... If I'm ever stuck in a lift, I can think through them all. But I think it's one of these topics which is, by definition, ongoing, and there is literally no right answer to it. I always think of a motorbike sort of going around uh, uh, the Alps or something. One minute you're leaning left, and then you're leaning right. One minute the regulators are playing catch-up, and then they're leading. And um, going back to the original thing, mixing metaphors, uh, this idea of a code base that at a certain point needs refactoring and re-engineering, um, then I think you're, you're right about that. But uh, then there is this much bigger question, which we'll see fairly soon with people wanting to do things like CBDCs and, and all this kind of stuff and say you can't spend your money on sweeties because you'll get fat or you can't like that tweet because it's sort of illegal to uh, have that opinion these days or whatever. Whether we are not going to see either explicitly uh, a refactoring of finance per se or implicitly in terms of developments with the likes of Russia and um, China and Singapore and plenty of other countries buying more and more gold and realising that there's a necessity of tethering all this paper money to some degree. But on that latter point, we will all have to keep going to bed and getting up in the morning and it, it will slowly evolve. So I thank you very much for that, Alistair, and I wish you and Integrated Finance every success in the future. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas, via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. To come away from the city, but with the tarmac so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city But with the faces so great Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye 
city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me 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 Watch the firelight dance with me